Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Samantha Cooper, and each episode presents my conversations with musicologists, ethnomusicologists, and sound study scholars who specialize in the music and sound of Jewish experience. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to today's episode featuring Dr. Anna Schultz. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me for the Sounding Jewish podcast. You are my first interview of this season, which is very exciting. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And what an honor to be the the first interviewee of this season. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I've wanted to get you on the podcast for a while because I think that your perspectives will really interest our listeners. But first, I'd love to give you the chance to introduce yourself. My name is Anna Schultz. I'm an associate professor of music in the humanities at the University of Chicago. I'm also a member of the Greenberg Center for Jewish Studies and an affiliate faculty member with the Department of South Asian Languages and Civilization. Wonderful. I know that you've worked on many different religious communities. I believe your first book was called Singing a Hindu Nation right, from 2013. Mm -hmm. But more recently, you're in the process of publishing Songs of Translation, B'nai Israel performance from India to Israel. This was particularly of interest to me because we haven't had someone on the podcast yet who has studied the B'nai Israel community. And so I'd wonder, just given your interest in religion more broadly, what had brought you to Jewish sound or music? Yeah, I mean, I have to say it was in many ways just from the encouragement of mentors and actually through my work on Hindu music in India. Unlike some of the other people you've interviewed, I didn't have an extensive kind of engagement with Jewish music before starting this project, which now has been about a decade and a half ago. I was raised in a Christian household, but my father was born Jewish and Mm -hmm. His mother was Jewish, and he had a bris, but not a bar mitzvah. And he was raised in a very Jewish environment in San Francisco. Their community of relatives and other tailors, it was a tailoring family, were mostly Jewish. But I grew up on the East Coast, and they were in San Francisco, so I didn't get to see that part of the family too much. So I guess I had had kind of a personal interest in trying to learn more about my grandmother, really, you Mm -hmm. know, so it's a really roundabout way to do that yeah, (laughs) by going all the way to India, but in a more specific kind of practical way, I encountered it, as I said, through my research on Hindu Kirtan. Probably about 2000, I was at my teacher's house, a performer of Kirtan, which is this song and storytelling genre that's performed in Hindu temples in the Marathi language. And his brother called up excitedly and said, 
that he had just read in an old book about the existence of Bene Israel Kirtan hmm. and about the founding of an institution for the promotion of Kirtan. And the, the year was 1880 for the founding of this institution. And I thought about it and I was like, you know, that's quite early. And came to realize that it was actually before the founding of the first modern Hindu Kirtan organization. And so I just was sort of interested in that tiny factoid. And I was also interested that they, as people from a Kirtan family who were really involved in this community, had no idea that there existed such a thing as Jewish Kirtan. So that was just something I filed away as, wow, interesting. Definitely. I'd like to know more. <laughs> and then when I was working on my dissertation from the University of Illinois, I ended up moving to Ithaca, New York. I was writing and, and living there and ended up teaching in the anthropology department as an adjunct. And my colleague there was Barbara Johnson, who has mm. worked on Cochin Jewish music. And she had been working with a B'nai Israel community leader and scholar named Flora Samuel in Israel. And Flora had requested her help on her project on B'nai Israel Kirtan. And Barbara had been working on it. But when I happened to come into her space as someone who speaks Marathi and works in music and had this very specific interest in Kirtan, I think she felt that I had been sort of delivered to her. <laughs> so she hadn't managed to find time to work on that project. So she gave me what she had been working on, her files, and kind of invited me to work on it. Israel Rajam, Israel Rashtram, Israel Padagae Uyaretevanil, Vegam Uyaretevanil, Enninitir to Dinam Vanaloyaran. That's so um, generous. I don't think we hear about scholars that do that. Yeah. It, no, yeah. I think it's 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 really true. It was really generous and and I think it's also partly because she was working on other things and mm -hmm. she didn't feel like she had the time to, yeah, to dedicate to it. And yeah. I'm sure she wanted That's... to see that scholarship in the world too. She really did. I yeah. think she did. She had made a commitment to Mrs. Samuel. Again, I thought it was a great idea, but I was finishing my dissertation, so I didn't really have time to work on it then. Mm -hmm. Put it away in a drawer. And around that same time, also, Shalva Weil, who works on B'nai Israel culture, is a sort of leading scholar and anthropologist 
B'nai Israel life had reached out to me. She had read something I had published on Gibson and had some questions about Gibson and told me a bit about the revival or, you know, told me that it had existed. And so those two things sort of happened around the same time. And then quite a few years later, I was working at the University of Minnesota and um, Philip Bowman, who had been my mentor for my master's degree, and we had been in touch over the years, invited me to present with him on Sacred Sound in Pune, where I had done my, my dissertation work. And I think maybe he imagined that I would do something related to my research on Hindu Kirtan, but I decided to take that opportunity to work on these materials that Barbara had given me. That was really the first time I kind of started putting it into motion. And then slowly, piece by piece, it kind of grew from there. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Backtracking a little bit, you'd mentioned that you were at the University of Illinois, and were you at mm-hmm. the University of Chicago before that? Was that where Philip Ullman was at the time? Yes, yeah, I did okay. my um, MA in social MA. science. Right, so you've kind of come full circle in a way. I have. Yeah. <laughs> it's not at all the trajectory I would have imagined, but I'm really grateful for it. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your scholarly trajectory. How did you decide that your initial research topic on Hindu ritual was the one for you? There's also an element of kind of randomness to that. My parents lived in India for a year during my first year of college. So I spent the first summer there with them of about three months and really loved the place. And it was actually in Pune, the city where I ended up doing my dissertation work. And I hadn't actually planned to go back. I just went there because my parents were there and I was only 18 years old. So I needed a home during the summer break. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But a friend convinced me to go on a study abroad program to the same city, Pune, with the Associated Colleges of the Midwest. And at that time, I had a really different experience. I lived with a Marathi-speaking family I was there for six months. We had a big orientation where we studied Marathi and Maharashtrian culture. It was really an incredible program. I'm really grateful for that.
And one of the activities they had organized for us was to go on part of this pilgrimage, a massive pilgrimage in Maharashtra called Navari. And at that time, I heard Kirtan for the first time. It happens almost nightly on Navari, maybe not every night, but there's some sort of event every night. And often that is Kirtan. And I was just really blown away with the, the kind of emotional power of this performance medium. And the way it combines so much in one person, you know, mm -hmm. singing, storytelling, philosophical discourse, dramatic gesturing, and how kind of spiritually arousing it is. But again, it was just something I really enjoyed and sort of filed away, but hadn't planned to kind of study in, in any formal way. <laughs> But then I became more interested in the history of India, the sort of political history of India and the history of nationalism mm -hmm. um, through various courses I took at the University of Illinois and ones that I, I took here at Chicago with Barney Cohen and Ronald Inden and Rajmohan Gandhi. At some point at Illinois, I was, I don't know if it was for a class or something, but I was in the stacks and I found a book called Regional Roots of Indian Nationalism that was published in India. And there was an article in that by a historian named V.D. Divekar, I believe. And it was on the sort of use of Rashtri Kirtan in the anti-colonial movement. And I thought how interesting it would be to tell a different kind of story of nationalism. Yeah. And having experienced Kirtan, I could sort of imagine the kind of emotional power in kind of getting people attached to the nation through song and, yeah. and through this medium. And so I ended up developing a dissertation project around it. And a funny thing is he was the first person I called when I went back to Pune. I found his contact information and I told him, oh, I've read your article. I found it in the University of Illinois library. And he didn't even know it had been published. So I gave him a copy of the article he wrote that I copied from <laughs> a library. In yeah, oh, that's so funny. I'm sure he loved that. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. would you say that your experience in the study of Jewish music, when you eventually came to it, was shaped at all by your experiences in graduate school? Or was this really the result of being gifted this treasure trove of resources near the end of your graduate study? I think the direct catalyst was this encouragement from mentors and this wonderful gift from Barbara. But I did have experiences in graduate school that were, were formative. I never took a course on Jewish music, but having studied with Philip Bowman and Bruno Nettle, Jewish music was woven into nearly mm -hmm. every course I took with both of them and also yeah. many of our kind of informal conversations. Mm -hmm. And from Bruno, for example, I learned about the importance of Jewish musicians in Iran 
and from both of them about Jewish folk music in Europe. Another formative experience was working with Pam Potter. I never okay. took a course from her, but I was her research assistant oh, amazing. Um, and copy editor when yeah. she was working on most German of the arts. And so yep. my job was to go through every footnote she wrote. Wow. Um, and <laughs> I think I got the job because I could speak German. And so from her, I really really got this inside view on what it means to be a historian, what kinds of documents to look for, how to read them, how to incorporate them into a text. It was a privilege to get to see behind the curtain of really powerful book. Yeah, she's a wonderful scholar. Do you have other advice that you would offer to prospective students or new scholars who are hoping to become ethnomusicologists or musicologists looking back at your own career? Yeah, I, I would say just be open to all kinds of learning. In addition to specific classes, things like being a research assistant, where you can apprentice in a way to a scholar, listening to all sorts of music, Jewish music in, in all types of contexts. Yeah, just an openness to all kinds of learning, I would say. That's great advice. So returning to Songs of Translation, I wondered mm -hmm. if you might be willing to talk to me a little bit about the shape that that book has taken. What did you decide in the end to argue? What kind of materials were you working with? Were there particular elements of significance that continue to stand out to you? I know this book is still in production, and so its mm -hmm. final form may not be fixed yet, but I'd just love to hear you speak about it and to learn more about this book that's coming out. Yeah, I really am in the final stages of this. I should have the full manuscript in about a month and a half. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. And and I'm on sabbatical for the next two quarters. So I'll get the opportunity to, to tweak things as needed. But it is really about issues of music, gender, and translation among the Bene Israel, as you said. And I'm really interested in how Marathi Jewish people have sort of articulated an identity, a Jewish identity, in relation to other Jewish people in India and from abroad, mm -hmm. and also in relation to other religious communities. So one way that I look at this is through the lens of translation and thinking broadly about translation. So thinking about religious translation, thinking about sonic translation, even kind of gendered translation, as well as linguistic translation. How are texts translated from Hebrew via English, say, into Marathi, or directly from Hebrew into Marathi? And also translation of texts into performance and back again. So, yeah, I, I would say that's sort of the main kind of like theoretical lens. Yeah. And the real motivating factor is to also think about the the very special role of women in kind of creating Bene Israel identity that is both Indian and also Jewish. Mm -hmm. And their kind of special engagement with Marathi literature and song and special expertise and how that expertise has led to a sort of cultural leadership within the community. 
and also how songs are just used to kind of connect people, you know, connect women in small gatherings and to connect communities. How does that special place for women play out in the B'nai Israel community? I think we don't talk necessarily enough about gender when it comes to ethnomusicology and musicology and even Jewish studies. And I'm just so interested in, in what you've seen and what you found. I find that it used to be that both men and women would sing the Marathi repertoire. Mm-hmm. And it covers every genre. From yeah domestic songs to praise songs to biblical songs. It's really, really a huge and diverse and really beautiful repertoire. Nowadays, there are still men who sing this repertoire, but it seems to be mostly women. The main singers are women, I should say. And so you find in community events, usually if if someone is called upon to sing a Marathi song, that will usually be a woman who's also Mm. a kind of community leader and an expert in Marathi song. That's very particular to this community, I would think, just in light of what we know about North American practice of Judaism. Right. Yeah. 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 And the sort of complicated place of women's performance within that tradition, more close to home. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the other things I found really interesting, just as I was looking back at some of the articles you published, was that you published this piece in 2016 that discussed how some of the roots of Jewish practice for the B'nai Israel community were actually based in a Christian text. And I'd love Uh to just talk more about that if you're willing to, because that was so fascinating to me. Yeah. So there's a text called Davida Chiquite which was a Psalter, a metrical Psalter that was edited and published by um, a missionary of the Church Missionary Society, a British missionary named C.P. Farrar. And that was published in the 1830s. It came out in a couple of volumes in the 1830s, had a second edition in the 50s and a third edition in 1890. And that collection has been sort of adopted and translated within the Bene Israel community as what I consider a Jewish songbook. So any place where you would sing psalms, you know, you might sing a psalm in Hebrew, according to liturgical tropes, and then also sing it in a Marathi tune from Davidachi Gite. And they're very commonly performed. They're really beloved. And now they circulate really primarily through photocopies of this 1890 edition. And so sometimes people sing directly from those photocopies during Torah study or in other contexts. Sometimes they're hand copied from the photocopied edition into personal notebooks that include a wide range of songs. 
And so I'm just really interested in how this text has become re-signified and really become Jewish mm-hmm. through the sounds, voices of women, and the practices of Jewish study and worship. Thank you for speaking to me a bit about that. I thought it was so special and interesting and... I don't know, just an exciting addition to this whole discussion of your book project. Can I ask a bit about the methodological models or tools that you most often find yourself using and how you developed your appreciation for them? Yeah, I use really a combination of ethnography and archival research, and they just all felt necessary to me because I'm I'm as interested in what's happening now as in how we got to where we are now. You know, and I'm interested in the stories that circulate now, as well as the kind of backstories and sub stories and those sorts of things. But I would say I'm primarily an ethnographer. This book, as with my last book, is really about half and half ethnography and history. So, for example, the chapter on the Psalms, I talk about the performance of Psalms, about the musical way that women have composed melodies for this text. But I also talk about the kind of like missionary history and how that impacted Benny Israel life as well. Which is is so Um, important when the history has not been written, or at least not mm -hmm. in the way that you're hoping to tell it. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, there has been some really wonderful work on this area. Flora Samuel herself mentioned it from time to time. Mitch Newmark has written about the missionary history vis-a-vis Bene Israel life. Shava Vial has also written about this, but the the kind of like sonic part of it mm-hmm. has not really been mm-hmm. addressed. Do you find that you play with the people that you're speaking with? Are you a participant observer or are you mostly speaking with them and watching their musical practice? I have been a participant observer in the past, (laughs) you know, for my Kirtan project, I was for sure. And I have shared songs with the women that I've worked with on the Bene Israel project, but I tend to listen a little more than to sing along. I actually, now that I'm speaking, I really have participated. I mean, when I go to the Torah study groups, we all take turns reading and and we all talk together about what we've read. I don't always sing along. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Fair enough. And in services, I mean, I'm not really writing about services, but I really enjoy and get a lot out of participating in services. That makes a lot of sense. I was just curious. Many scholars will celebrate the opportunity to teach others as an extension of their own research pursuits. 
And so I wondered if you might talk to me a little bit about your recent lecturing or teaching experience and how that has contributed to your research agenda. And as an addendum, I'll just add that I had the privilege of meeting you when you gave a lecture last year at Harvard. And so this is kind of a full circle question again for me. Yeah, it was so nice to meet you there. And that was another project that sort of came out of this project, the B'nai Israel project, but it's going in a different direction. So I feel like everything one gets involved in kind of gives you clues about the path forward. Definitely. And I gain so much every time I have the opportunity to give a lecture, the people I get responses from and and get to meet. One lecture in particular that was really meaningful for me recently was one that I gave about a year ago at the B'nai Israel Heritage Center in Israel. And of course, this was via Zoom. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there in person. (laughs) But people tuned in from Israel, from the US, from India. I let Mm -hmm. my friends from the B'nai Israel community know that this was happening. And I was So honored that many of them stayed up in the middle of the night to attend the session. And I had never done something quite like that before. And it was really, really useful and meaningful for me to be able to then follow up with my interlocutors and friends afterwards and get their feedback and ideas. And I've then incorporated that into the book as I'm editing I enjoy lecturing for not just scholarly audiences and different scholarly communities. So I'm most often now invited by departments of Jewish studies, South Asian studies, and music. And I think any one of them would not be sufficient for me to get the range of feedback that I want and need, but all of them together are really, really valuable. I was just going to ask you how that has translated in your teaching at Chicago and maybe at other programs too. Have you had this chance to draw on your own interests in the classroom? Yeah, I have. I'm really lucky in that way. So I've been able to teach graduate seminars at Chicago and at Stanford on music and translation. That was my most recent graduate seminar, Music and Gender. With Jesse Roden at Stanford, I taught a course on music and diaspora in Jewish life and lots of courses on music in South Asia. I learn something every time I get to teach one of these classes. And I'm really lucky that I'm really allowed to teach anything I want. Yeah, that's a great position to be in. Yes. The dream, the dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, what kinds of research questions are currently preoccupying you? I got a little bit of a taste last year, but I'd love to hear you speak more about that. Sure. Yeah, this will be my next big research project. So the the chapter that you heard about at my lecture at Harvard was on um, magic lantern shows and keep them and the kind of like competing modes of spectacle and performance. But it's part of a larger project on sound and projection in the mm-hmm. making of modern Maharashtra. Yeah. So thinking about projection and screens beyond kind of the paradigmatic 
context of like a theater or a home. Mm-hmm. But you know, what happens when you project on a sheet that you put up in different villages as right. you go around from place to place? What happens when you project on an ancient fort or on a piece of landscape mm-hmm. or on a concrete screen on the banks of a holy river? How do people make claims on space and through technology and through image? And then how does sound enable people to engage with those images? Yeah, it's a it's a completely different way of thinking about image and sound and the possible movement of projection, which I don't think many of us consider beyond perhaps the Hollywood context, right? Or the, the typical North American screen context. So to right. just... Yeah, to just think about all of these other possibilities for how sound and projection has translated in other parts of the world is so fascinating. And perhaps what ties those might have with religion or religious communities as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk more with you about it as it goes forward. I'm really excited about it and excited to start some new field work related to it. I've worked on two chapters and um, have ideas for others. So yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. Just to wrap up for today, I'd love to ask you how you understand what you perceive as the field of Jewish music and any issues or challenges with this field of study that you've noticed and think other scholars need to remain attentive to. I'd say really it could be any study of music in Jewish life. So it could be sacred Jewish music. It could be secular music in Jewish life. I'm personally interested as much in the music itself as in the music makers. But in terms of like things to be attentive to, I think it is such a vast area. For the uninitiated, one may think, oh, Jewish music studies, that's a very narrow field. To me, it actually seems enormous. Exactly. Really vast. I mean, there are Jewish people and Jewish music making and Jewish sound all over the world. And there's so much to encounter and be in dialogue with and to listen to. In terms of things to think about, I would say to think similarly expansively about the idea of diaspora as not just a kind of binary, but as a multiplicity in which points on the diaspora are connected Mm -hmm. and in which there is constant movement between home and diaspora. And in fact, the distinction between home and diaspora sometimes becomes blurred. Yeah, I think that that's a really good inroads into that discussion. Well, taking us to our final question that I typically ask all participants, do you believe that there is such a thing as Jewish music or an identifiable Jewish sound? Why or why not? If so, how would you characterize it? And if this question seems too essentializing, what questions about the music and sound of Jewish experience would you ask instead? I think primarily because my encounters with Jewish music have been largely outside of a Euro-American context, 
I really shy away from the idea of a unified Jewish sound. I really think that there are infinite culturally positioned ways to sound Jewish, meaning to perform Jewish ritual and to sing Jewish principles and praise the divine. And so really the diversity of Jewish sound making in terms of melody, rhythm, other musical parameters just really makes it impossible for me to generalize. And even if one looks more broadly at, say, gender roles or the use of instruments, there are patterns, but so many exceptions Mm -hmm. that it's also hard to generalize in those ways. I've been kind of thinking about this and really the only sort of constant feature I would say is the centrality of both written text and orality and their Mm -hmm. dialectic relationship to one another. And that itself is very, very broad, (laughs) but perhaps all of this sounds like a cop out. And I, I don't mean to say that there isn't Jewish music or Jewish music and identity, but rather that it is just so varied. Yes, I think that's a wonderful answer. It really does jive with and challenge many of the responses that other participants have shared. So I'm glad that you leaned into being a little bit contrary. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much for speaking with me today and for agreeing to be on the podcast. I'm looking forward to continuing to be in conversation with you. And thank you so much. Thank you. This was just such a pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to listening to more of your podcast and learning from you and your interlocutors. Thanks so much. And now a brief note from our sponsors. The Sounding Jewish podcast is grateful to be sponsored by the Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. This year, in honor of its fellowship theme, The Sound and Music of Jewish Life, many of the Katz Center's public programs, both online and in person, feature scholarship devoted to Jewish music and sound. On Thursday, November 2nd at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Dr. Michael Lukin will present the first of three Zoom webinars devoted to Nigunim, titled The Emergence of the Hasidic Nigunim, Teachings and Melodies. On Tuesday, November 7th at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, both in person on the sixth floor of the University of Pennsylvania's Van Pelt-Dietrich Library and on Zoom, Dr. Edwin Sarusi, Dr. Rebecca Sipis, Dr. Mauro Calgano, and mezzo-soprano Meg Bragel will present a roundtable called Salamane Rossi at Jewish Music in Early Modern Italy. On Thursday, November 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Zoom, Dr. Anna Schoenschis will present a lecture titled Why Are You Silent to Our Enemies, Dear God? Music Facing the Holocaust. And finally, on Tuesday, November 28th at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Jewish Music Forum's very own Dr. Gordon Dale will present the second of three Zoom webinars devoted to Nigunim titled Hasidic Song in a Strange Land, Ben Sion Schenker and the Nigun in America. To receive a Zoom link for these programs, please register online using the links in the show notes. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, the American Society for Jewish Music, 
the Milken Center for Music of American Jewish Experience at UCLA, and the University of Pennsylvania's Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies. Tune in next month when I will be joined by Dr. Jessica Roda to discuss her ongoing study of music in the Hasidic world for women and girls only. Bye for now.